Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Would you stand for the reading of the Word of God, please? Mom, Nathan, and I fully acknowledge we're the B team here. <laughs> I'm reading from Matthew 2, verses 16 through 21. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And Nathan's version says he flew into a rage. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Rama, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. Amen. Thank you, Lord. It's good. Let's pray together. Father, this is still the Christmas story. We've just been rejoicing with shepherds and angels and, and singing about the birth of your son. And here it takes a dark turn, a really dark turn. There's a great tragedy here that's almost, almost unspeakable. Right. And yet, Father, we just sang songs about the goodness of God and blessed be your name. And so, Holy Spirit, in the middle of these, of these tragedies like this, in our own lives, in and, and the ones that we read throughout Scripture like this, will you be our comforter Amen. and our friend and our peace? And will you help us be faithful and continue to remember that God is good and that he is faithful, even in the dark times? We thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for your plan that is at work in dark times like this. We ask your blessings on the rest of the service now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nathan. Rebecca, I love you. Thank you. Verse 16. Verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became very enraged. He had told them, when you find that baby down in Bethlehem, five miles away, when you find the baby, you come back and you tell him so that I can worship him too. Well, obviously... Uh, the wise men were warned by the Lord, and so they did not go back to Herod because he didn't want to worship the baby. He wanted to kill the baby. And all of a sudden, here's Herod having a fit. He's flying into a rage. I mean, he's going ballistic here. When he should have been mad at himself. He's upset because they didn't come back. Wait a minute, he's the liar. He's the one who said he wanted to worship. He's the one that actually wants to assassinate a baby. Now, learn something here, everybody. Learn something. 
Learn a good lesson here. Sin always looks better in us than it does in others. You take the same sin that you commit. When somebody else does it, it really looks bad. But when you do it, you have a way of justifying it. You have a way of, of kind of polishing it up. Let me give you some examples. You, you are skin flints. I am thrifty. You have an anger problem. I'm blessed with righteous indignation. You like to show off. I'm a great example. You're always trying to kiss up on people. I'm kind. You see the difference? Here's a great example of that. Here's Herod blowing up at them because he thought they were coming back when he's the one who's the guilty one. Be careful. Be careful that you don't get to where you justify in yourself the sins that you see as ugly in others. Now, as Nathan so perfectly prayed, now let's go to the rest of this passage, the dark part of this story. Matthew chapter 2, let's go to verse 16, and we're going to read on down to verse 18. Here we go. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became very enraged. And he sent men and killed all the boys. Are you hearing me, folks? They killed all the boys who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity who were two years old or under. If you want to guess, we guess that Bethlehem's population was about 300 to 1,000 at the time. And they're probably about 20 boys would have been murdered under two years of age. According to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Now this is a passage from the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 31. A voice was heard in Ramah. Ramah is a city five miles north of Jerusalem. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. Stop. Rachel is buried ten miles away. She's the mother of the tribe of Benjamin. She's buried ten miles away in Bethlehem. Remember, Bethlehem is five miles south of Jerusalem. Ramah is five miles north. Just remember that. We'll come back to that in a second. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Luke, the great writer that he was, wanted everybody to know that God was not taken by surprise by this massacre. God saw the current event foreshadowed in an ancient tragedy. Let me tell you what the tragedy was. When the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C., they took the main people of Israel out of Jerusalem and they took them up five miles north to the town of Ramah. It was a nice uh, area where they could get away from the destruction, the fires and everything in Jerusalem. So they took all these important people to Ramah. 
Jeremiah the prophet was there when this happened, and it is in Ramah that the Babylonians killed multitudes of the Israelites, ripped families apart, sent many of them into bondage, exported them away. And Jeremiah, the great preacher, he saw this. He was there when it happened. And so he's writing in Jeremiah 31, and he can hear the screams of the people as their family members are being killed or children being ripped away from their parents. And so he writes down and says, I can hear Rachel, who's been dead for a long time, obviously. I hear Rachel 10 miles away in her grave. She's screaming and crying because this should not happen. And now, all these years later after Jeremiah, what Jeremiah saw in Ramah and imagined he could hear Rachel weeping now, from 10 miles away, now a terrible tragedy is happening right where she's buried. Right in Bethlehem. And all the screaming and all the yelling, now it is right near her, right where she is buried. But, but, would you read the first three words of verse 19, please? Would you look at verse 19, please? But when Herod died, I want you to notice that even in this dark, dark moment, God won. Despite his conniving, Herod failed. God had Herod die. If you want to know the exact day, we know the exact day that Herod the Great died. April 4th, 4 B.C. It's easy to remember, 444, April 4, 4 B.C., he was 66 years old. We know the exact day because he died almost precisely on a lunar eclipse. That's one of those very few dates in Scripture we can actually track to the very day. He stands again as the reminder that anyone, anyone who opposes Christ and his church ultimately will fail. Jesus said, that he was going to build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. In other words, the church is here to stay. The church is not going away. You will never, ever destroy the church. After Christianity took the Roman Empire in Constantinople, I mean, Constantine, Constantine was, was fighting against Christianity, but then in battle, all of a sudden, he saw this vision. He saw a vision of the cross. And he's, in the vision, it said, in this sign, conquer. And suddenly Constantine changed and became a great champion for Christianity. And before long, Christianity, which had been persecuted, was now the official religion of the Roman Empire. Let me tell you how quickly this happened. Right after Christianity went from being persecuted to being the, religious, the religion of the day, we had the Council of Nicaea. You've heard of the Nicene Creed? Where the Christians got together to decide if Jesus was fully God or not really totally God. The men who came to the Council of Nicaea, the most important council in the history of the church, these men had the persecution marks in their bodies. These were men who had been beaten, whipped, ostracized, exiled. These were the leaders of the church, and they came to Nicaea. It's one of those amazing moments where the persecuted ones have become the winners. 
So you have this great turnaround in the Roman Empire. But then, about 40 years later, a man becomes the emperor who is not a Christian. His name is Julian. And Julian decides he's going to take Christianity back, uh, going to push it back, and he is going to take Rome back to worshiping the pagan gods. And so he takes his army, he takes his sword, and off to war he goes, and the Christians to defend themselves. They fight against his troops, they hold him, and in battle, Julian is injured, and his dying words on the battlefield, you have conquered, O Galilean. You have conquered, O Galilean. He always conquers. Jesus will always win. In the 20th century, the 20th century, the century of atheism, atheism killed more people in the 20th century than have died in all religious wars of history combined. Add them all up, all the religious wars, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, all the wars that were caused about religion. Everybody talks about and says that shows religion is so terrible. In one century, the 20th century, atheism, Russia, Nazis, China, Khmer Rouge, Cuba, just line them up. Atheists killed more in one century than died in 2,000 years of human history because of religion. Russia raised up its head against the church and started killing Christians right and left. It failed. The Soviet empire collapsed. Cuba. Fidel Castro said he would destroy the church. Brilliant. Maybe the most brilliant of the atheists. For you to be advanced in communism, you had to go to classes on Sunday morning. Fidel Castro, a communist atheist, understood the importance of going to church better than a lot of Christians do. Listen to me. He knew if he could disrupt Sunday morning, he could disrupt Christianity. But he threw himself against the church. He died and now there are more Christians in Cuba than there have ever been in the history of the world. Chinese communism, they decided they'd throw themselves against the church. They thought they would destroy the faith. The greatest revival in the world right now is right under the nose of the communist leaders of China. A million people a year. One million a year are becoming Christians. You will never defeat the church. Nigeria. Nigeria, where more Christians are killed every year than any other place in the world. Most people don't know that. More than in North Korea, more than in China, more than in Russia, more than anywhere else in the world. More Christians are killed every year in Nigeria than anywhere else. But if you go to Nigeria, the Nigerian Christians will be offended. They will be offended if you say to them the greatest revival in the world is in China. They're being saved so fast in Nigeria, they can't keep up with it. And so when we talk about the great revival in China, the Nigerians say, wait a minute. You need to come and see what's happening here. Yes, dying by the thousands every year, but being saved by the thousands. And maybe Nigeria is showing us the way the world really is. There will always be the persecutors. But we will always win. Jesus will always win. But remember the terms. Do you get the terms? We say the Christians have victory. What does victory imply? 
a race, competition. We said, what did I just say? We will win. What does win imply? Win implies you've got to beat somebody. Somebody's opposed to you. So you see this perfect picture. In this evil world, there are always going to be lots of Herods who like to give out pain to believers. People like to persecute you. People like to make fun of you and laugh at you because you're a believer. There will always be plenty of Ramaz, places where you can be hurt, where pain will be distributed to you. There are plenty of Rachels. That means there are a lot of people who still have to receive pain and receive hurt because of their faith and because of other things in this world. You don't have to look far to see that Satan, as I told you last week, the Bible says, listen to me, it's one of the most important verses in the Bible with regard to suffering. Satan is the God of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. That's the address. Satan is the God of this world. When we sinned in the Garden of Eden, we invited sin in and the devil became the master of our existence. But God, God who loves his people, never forsakes them. With a man named Abram, who became Abraham, God took a spike And he nailed it in the ground, and he said, Mr. Devil, I'm coming to take back my world. This is my territory. You might be the boss. You might be running it, but here I come. And from that moment on, from the moment that God planted the spike in the ground, it has been God versus the devil with God advancing, 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 Satan fighting, fighting, fighting. The battle is engaged. And so until Jesus comes again, You're going to have lots of Herods, but those Herods are going to die. They are not going to win. Now, in the meantime, be careful what you say about suffering and the reasons people go through the problems they go through. Now, listen to me. As you know, I don't go deep very often. I preach right where you live. I'm a very practical Right in front of you, right in your face type of preacher. You know that. But every once in a while, you've got to go deep. Are you going to miss? You're not going to understand. Now, listen to me. When you're trying to analyze why there's so much struggle, why there's so much, why does God allow this to happen? You must always be very careful not to say things that could backfire on you. For instance, let me give you, let me give you a radical example. Now, listen to me. You would think it would be obvious to say to someone, let's say someone who's very promiscuous in their sexual life, and they get a sexually transmitted disease. You you would almost automatically say, well, of course, God's punishing them for what they did. That's why they had the disease, because they had all that sex, and God said, that's it, and God punished them. Time out. Time out. Don't, don't Don't be walking around saying that. Don't be saying that. You don't know cause and effect. What about the millions of people who are just like this person who do the exact same thing but never get a sexually transmitted disease? You you must never think that when you're looking at a situation that you understand cause and effect. That you know exactly why this bad thing is happening to these good people or why this is happening to this sinner 
Always be careful when you have friends or loved ones who are going through a hard time of suffering. Be careful what you say. Because what you can say in a classroom and in a pulpit to a congregation, a lot of times you cannot say to someone who's actually going through the suffering. Those are two different settings. See, we sit in a room, we preach sermons like this, or we sit in a room, we talk about suffering, and there are things we say in the room, and we say in the sermon, that you should never say to a person while they're suffering. For instance, let me give you some examples. If you're teaching a class or preaching a sermon, it's okay to say to a group in mass, say, this is going to make you a better person. Sometimes that's true, sometimes not, but still it's okay to say it and debate it when you're just in a room with people and you're just talking. But you never, don't ever walk up to somebody in suffering and say to them, this will make you a better person. Oh, that'll make them feel real good. This is going to help you out. Another one. Other people are hurting too. That's okay to say in a classroom or in a sermon. To say something like, there are a lot of people hurting. I mean, just look around. There are a lot of people worse off than you are. That's the theory behind group, uh, group therapy. The reason group therapy is so helpful, all psychological places use group therapy. You sit around a room and you talk. There's always somebody hurting worse than you in some area of life. So, so it's okay in, in an academic setting to say others are hurting too, but you don't ever walk up to somebody who's suffering saying, well, you're just like everybody else. Everybody has to suffer. No, don't say stupid things like that. Another one. No, this will pass. Um, my dear cousin Lois says her favorite Bible verse is, and it came to pass. That's about the worst exegesis of Scripture you'll ever hear. That's not what it means. But she says it came to pass. She means it's got, everything that happens in your life is going to pass away. Well, that's okay in a classroom. Sit down and say, now this will end. This will go away. Don't walk up to somebody and say, now this is going to pass. You're going to get over it someday. Don't, don't, don't do things like this. Here's one. You ready for this one? Here's one. It's okay to say this in a sermon and in a classroom. This is God's will. It's okay if you say that you know, in a sermon and when you're in a classroom or something, but you don't walk up to somebody, their heart is being ripped right out, and you say, this is God's will. Just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you know what the greatest thing that Job's friends did for him? Those days they sat there and never said a word. They kept their mouth shut. That's the greatest thing they did. Once they opened their mouths, it was downhill from there. Don't ever say things like this could be worse, or at least God didn't let this happen. There are certain things that are appropriate in an academic setting, but not in the furnace of grief itself. Don't say, for instance, don't say to someone who's suffering, if you need anything, call me. Oh, that's so generous of you. No, no. You don't ever say, if you need something, call me. You look them right straight in the eye and you say, what can I do for you now? Now, I've talked to you about my family and the suffering that we've gone through. One of the darkest hours in the life of our family was when we found out how serious my second oldest grandson's um, mental affliction was going to be. And in that very dark season, I can, I can show you that there is a place 
inside the stadiums of Springfield that every time I pass it, it is the place where I finally acknowledged in my heart that my grandson was as bad as it proved to be. And to this day, when I drive by that place, by the way, it's so interesting, I take care of him two days a week. And when I take care of him, I have a route that I use to try to help take care of him that always takes me by that spot. It's very interesting. And I never can pass that spot without, being, without remembering the darkness of that day and the hardness of that hour. In that darkest hour, there were four things that were said to me that helped me that I have used ever since. Yes, get your paper out and get ready to write. And if you don't have something to write on, write on the sleeve of the person next to you. <laughs> or write on your hand. That was one thing the teenagers a second used to do. They'd write on their hand. They'd come up and show me their hand that they look like a tattoo on their hand. Or don't, don't, don't do that. But, but find something to write on. Here they are. Here are the four things that were said to me in the darkest hours, some of the, dark, some of the darkest hours of my life. Here they are. Number one. You ready? Write it down. I'm sorry you are going through this. There's something magical about the word, I'm sorry. Because it, it connotes a sharing of suffering. I am, I am with you in this. So that's number one, I am sorry. Number two, my dear friend, Ed Meyer, he's in heaven now with Jesus. My friend Ed Meyer one day said to me, I wish I could reach into your heart Take out some of the pain and carry it for you a while. Never forgot. I can still remember, I can still remember the look on his face. I, I can still see him. I wish I could take some of the pain out of your heart and carry it for you for a while. Number three. Sweet Ruthie. My Ruthie. While we were going through this terrible time, she said, Don't. Let the devil get any good out of our pain. That was number three. Don't let the devil get any good out of our pain. That was a great word for my wife. Don't let it make us bitter. Don't let it make us like mean people. Don't let us lose our temper. Don't, don't let us lose our faith. Don't let the devil get any good out of our pain. And then number four. Number four. I heard Mike Haynes, our DOM at the time, our director of missions at the time, I heard him preach a sermon entitled, Don't Waste Your Pain. And basically, the purpose of the message was to say, if you are a believer and you are suffering, you should use your pain to bless others who are hurting. Use your pain to bless others. Try somehow to take this load that has been given to you and somehow transfer some, somehow. So now take this and take what is totally negative and make something positive out of it. So those are the four statements that helped me the most. Then inside myself, when I finally came to grips with, with our situation, where we're, there were four statements. You ready to write four more things down? Get ready. Here we go. Four more things. There were four things. There were four things that inside me I had to come to grips with and decide this is concrete faith. Now, once again, I don't go this deep very often, but we're down here. Let's, let's, while we're down here, let's go. Okay, ready? There are four things I had to come to grips with, that I had to believe. that if I was going to survive this and keep my faith, get through this, there are four things I had to believe. Number one, 
God is. I had to believe there was a God. Uh, when I left for seminary, Ruthie and I, my 1972 Ford Maverick, we stopped to visit my grandpa, Marshall. As we were getting in the car to leave, my grandpa looked right straight across the top of that Maverick, and he, he said, Son, I believe in God as much as I believe you and I are standing here. And there was something about that moment that when I was going through this dark hour, I had to come to the point, do I believe like Grandpa did? Do I believe God is? Number two, I had to come to the position that I really believe God is love. Now listen to me, stay with me. Don't ever, don't you ever in your life, teenagers, listen to me really good. Listen to me really good right now. Don't you ever in your life say that you know God is love because of anything that's happening in your life at that moment. Don't ever do that. Because anything that you say that's really good in your life at the moment might not be there tomorrow. You don't base your faith ever on what's happening. I had to come to the place that I believed God is love because Jesus Christ died on a cross for me. I had to completely take it out of my life. I had to take it out of my world. I had to say, I'm never again going to believe that God is love because of anything in my life. From this day forward, I'm going to believe God is love because Jesus died on a cross. So that took the God is love formula out of the laboratory. It took it out of the crucible, put it on a cross is where it needs to be. So that was number two, God is love. Number three, I had to come to deal with this. Here's number three. God is faithful. When, when we sinned in the Garden of Eden, we let the devil in. Do you understand what happened in the Garden? Every pain in the world, every sadness, every sickness, every sorrow was because we invited Satan into this world. That's why everything that's gone wrong in the world is because we invited Satan in. We were so bad that when God came to visit with Adam, who represented us all, we all would have done the same thing. That's the whole purpose of Eden, is to say this is what we would have done. So God comes to visit with Adam. God knows Adam has sinned. God knows this is no longer his territory. He now knows what's going to happen. Where's Adam? He's hiding. He's hiding from God. And God says, where are you? God found him. God was faithful. Even when Adam failed, God found him. In Egypt, when God's people were down in Egypt, landing the burden so hard. Do you know, historians believe, are you ready for this? Historians believe that the Jews, for 400 years, never had a day off. Never! Never! So do you think that to them it was a burden when God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you will labor, but one day you'll rest. Do you think all the Jews out in the wilderness said, oh, crumb, we've got to take a day off. I mean, it's beautiful. God came down into this darkness, this, this, this nation. It was totally forgotten. Nobody cared for. Nobody was thinking about God came and he brought them out. He was faithful. And then when the world's about as dark as it ever could get under the Roman Empire, when it was about at its bottom, you think it's bad now? Uh-uh. No, 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 no. 
This is Disney World compared to Rome. When it was really dark, God came to Bethlehem in the form of a baby. And he came into this darkness. And then in the darkest time, when the Son of God was dead in a grave, dead in a grave, God was faithful. He came. And so I had to come to the place that I believe that God is, that I believe that God is love because of what he did on the cross, and that God is faithful because every time things looked as bad as they could be, God came and I believe God's going to do something in my life. And the fourth thing that I had to remember that keeps me as a ballast in my life, the fourth thing is God will take us to heaven someday. The Bible says there's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, you cannot go to hell. There is no condemnation. You can't do it. The word justification. Now listen to me. Stay with me. Boy. It's hard for me to go deep and stay deep, but I've got to stay down here. Stay with me now. Stay with me. Don't, lose me. Don't, don't leave me now. Come on. The term justification is a legal term, like in a courtroom. And so when you become a follower of Christ, the Bible says you have justification, just as if it never happened is a good little way to remember it. You, you are justified like in a courtroom. And you are forgiven in a way to where you can never go to hell again. You're found not guilty with regard to eternity. You're found not guilty with regard to damnation. You are not guilty now. So you don't need the forgiveness of God to save you. But for the rest of your life, you're always asking God to forgive you, not to save you, but so that your relationship can be restored. You see the difference? When you get saved... You're forgiven forever. As far as your everlasting condition, heaven, hell, in a courtroom, you stand before God and the judge says, you're justified. You will never go to hell. But then you spend the rest of your life, you sin, you stumble, you do things you shouldn't do. You understand that. And so you spend your life asking for forgiveness, not because you're worried about hell, not because you're afraid that you're going to be driven away from Christ, but you're asking for forgiveness so that the relationship can be beautiful and precious as long as you live. Those are the four things that I had to come to grips with. To believe that God does exist, that because Jesus died on the cross, He loves me. Because God always comes when life is its darkest, He will take care of me. And someday I am going to go to heaven. All right. Now, I have three more pages in this sermon. But I'm going to start there next Sunday. I'm going to leave you right there. Because we're going to come out of the depth. We're going to come up. We're going to talk about family and the importance of family. It just doesn't fit. And somehow in my heart of hearts, I feel like I've probably given you enough today to give you to think about for a while. Somebody say, yes, you have. Thank you very much. We're going to stop right there. All right, we're going to stop. We're going to, I don't do that very often. I've told Ruth when I get to heaven, I'm going to preach for 100 years. And she said, turn the lights out when you're done. All right. So I don't very often quit. I don't very often quit, but I'm going to quit right there today. And I'm going to start on a different tenor next Sunday. All right, we're going to stop. Put your notes away. Put everything away now. Focus your mind and your heart now. And let's talk to the Lord.
Now, let me, may I walk through the four just for a minute while you're praying? I'm going to talk to believers first, then I'm going to talk to unbelievers. Number one, do you truly believe God is? How's your faith right there? Number two, do you understand that God is love no matter what's happening in your life right now? Not because of anything that's happening in your life, but solely because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And then do you understand that God is faithful? He's not necessarily going to take your trouble away from you, but he will either lessen it or he will give, make you stronger to where you can do what you need to do. God is faithful. He's going to come through in some way. And then do you believe God's going to take you to heaven? Do you believe that when it's all said and done, you're going to go to heaven? While you pray about those things, may I speak to unbelievers that are here? Dear unbeliever, one of the most brilliant men I've ever known in my life. He was a judge. He would come and he would listen to me preach. He was not a believer. He would come and he would listen week after week. He'd slip in a little bit late and leave a little bit early. But he would listen to the sermon. And finally he became a Christian. And he said, Pastor, when I surrendered up in the balcony at church that Sunday, when I gave my life to the Lord, he said, my brain started going click, click, click. He said, for the first time in my life, I understood the world. I understood history. I understood heaven. I understood all of it came together. If you're an unbeliever, what I have preached today is maybe the most important thing that you can hear with regard to the reason the world is the way it is. One of the great things about being a Christian is that it makes history logical. It makes sense. Suddenly you understand, well, my God, no wonder humans can be so great. They're made in the image of God. Oh, my, but. No wonder humans can be so evil because we invited Satan to be the God of our world. No wonder there are great things that happen. God loves people and he comes and does things. No wonder there are really bad things that happen to people because evil is let loose in the land. It is Christianity that allows you to finally understand life. And if you're a person who's not a believer, I would dare say to you that you can see in your own life what I've preached about on a grand scale, that you can see on a small scale in your own existence, you see the truth of what has been said here today. God created the world. We sinned. There are days you feel like you're the image of God. There are days you feel like you're a terrible sinner. You do things you don't want to do and you shouldn't do. And the message of the gospel is that in our darkness, Jesus came. Jesus died on the cross, took your hell into his very body, suffered your sin. And if you are sorry for your sin, if you will call upon Jesus and ask him to forgive you, his blood and all that it bought, all that it paid for will be applied to you. And you can become a Christ follower. And if you'd like to do that, I'm going to lead you in a little prayer. Now, this prayer doesn't save you. There's no magic in this prayer. I always try to be careful to emphasize that. We Christians don't believe in magic. The words have meaning only if they're expressing what you're really sensing inside. So if right now 
you truly understand. Maybe for the first moment, some of you, maybe for the first time, there might be someone in the room who says, I get it. It's the first time ever. And you would like to come to Christ. Let me lead you in a prayer. If this prayer says what you are yearning to say, then would you repeat it silently as I pray it out loud? Here it is. Dear Jesus, I am sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. Come live in my heart. I receive you as the master of my life. Amen.